You're listening to the Pursue God Truth Podcast, the official channel for faith and life topics at PursueGod.org. Join us every week as we explore new topics from a biblical perspective. All right, everybody, open up your Bibles. Today we're going to be studying Mark chapter 11, verse starting at verse 27. We're going to go all the way to chapter 12, verse 12. And John, this is where the authority of Jesus is questioned by the Jewish religious leaders. He's going to kind of go toe-to-toe once again with the authority. We're going to get into all of that. But before we get to the text, I think I think we need to kind of talk about this question that probably any every generation has asked and tried to answer, but our generation, I mean, I think we should look at it again through the eyes of our generation. And here's the question. Is spiritual authority a thing anymore? Right, John? I mean, you're a pastor in a church. Doesn't it, doesn't it seem like young, and not just young people, but just this today's generation, like fewer and fewer and fewer people even recognize spiritual authority? Did you just use the A word? I think you might have just run off about half of our listeners. <laughs> I would imagine people bristled just at the mention of that word authority. You know, to your point, Brian, we want to push back against it. We, we almost look at it as a badge of honor in our culture today if we rebel against authority. And look, guys, we do live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world, which means there are broken people. There are fallen people in positions of authority. And certainly it, it gets abused sometimes. Uh, certainly if someone is asking you to do something contrary to God's word, you should push back on that, push back on that firmly. But it goes much deeper than that. It goes to something in our fallen nature that just wants to push back on all authority, good or bad. I was thinking about this this morning because I knew we were recording today. I bet every parent who's on the podcast can remember the first time that sweet, little, innocent toddler who had always been compliant looked you in the eye and said, no. (laughs) And and you were thinking, (laughs) what? Are are you crazy? Did you just tell me no? You know, your very life depends on me. You can't feed yourself. You can't put clothes on your back. I know what's best for you, and you just told me no. And I got to think that's how God laughs when we tell him no, that righteous authority is a good thing. And yes, Brian, I know we're going to talk about this throughout today's podcast, but I do believe spiritual authority is still a thing. Well, I think spiritual authority gets a bad name because it's been so abused. It's kind of like masculinity. So it's we're throwing masculinity um, out out the window altogether because so much masculinity throughout history has been toxic. But that doesn't mean that there isn't such a thing as biblical masculinity. And the same thing with authority. Just because for our listeners, maybe who grew up with really heavy-handed parents or maybe in a cult, you know, John, we have a lot of people at our church who, who have come out of Mormonism. And Mormonism has authority that's, uh, honestly, it's like oppressive for so many Mormons that I've talked to who've come out of that. And so it's easy, you know, some of you might be listening right now, it's easy for you to think, okay, I've left the Mormon church, which is very top-down, very authoritative, and now I've come into a non-denominational church, and so that must mean there is no authority. Well, we're going to answer those questions today, right? And I would say, too, if you think that there is joy in being free from all authority, I, I want to challenge that today. And, and I would say that God's Word teaches that there is actually joy 
in submitting to righteous authority. One of the best examples of this to me is Psalm 119, beginning in verse 1. The psalmist says, Joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil and they walk only in his paths. You have charged us to keep your commandments carefully. Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. Then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. As I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. I will obey your decrees. Please don't give up on me. There are so many words in those eight verses that speak to submission to authority. We see the word obey more than once. We see the words commands and decrees. These are all words that describe submitting to God's authority in our lives. Yeah, the whole Bible, I I guess in in one sense, the whole Bible is about authority. You know, God... God has authority uh, to, to create the heavens and the earth. God has the authority to breathe life into Adam and Eve. God has the authority to judge the earth in the days of Moses or Noah. God has the authority to lead the Israelites out of Egypt into, toward the promised land. God has the authority to give the Ten Commandments to the people so that they could finally see his authority, right? They can actually start to measure and think about in a very practical way, his authority. And so just all through, and we can go on, but all throughout scripture, we just see authority, authority, authority all over the place. But we see the opposite of that also. We see what you just said about the two-year-old that every parent has experienced. We see that that's really what God's people are, not just God's people, but all the people, everyone ever born. We see this pattern in the Old Testament is we're all broken. And so there's this, this, this desire to rebel against God's authority because we want to be our own authority. And so really this question is an age-old question. Is spiritual authority a thing anymore? I guess you could say, well, when was it ever even a thing? People have always been pushing against it, kicking against it. And the truth is what we're going to see, the truth is, is when we bring ourselves under godly spiritual authority, it's for our good. It's a good thing. It Like you said, John, it brings us joy. So with all of this in mind, let's go to the text for today. Mark chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 27. It says this, again, they entered Jerusalem. So we're talking about Jesus and his disciples. You know, we, the last couple of weeks, he's, we've been studying this section of scripture where they're, they're coming into Jerusalem a week from now, less than a week from now in this story, Jesus is going to be hanging on the cross. And so that's the time frame that we're talking about here. So they're in Jerusalem. Jesus was walking through the temple area and the leading priests, the teachers of religious law and the elders, notice there are three groups there. We'll get into that in a second. They all come up to him and they, they asked him this question, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right to do them? John, help us to understand what are they talking about? Why are they asking this question? It mentions that Jesus and his disciples are again entering Jerusalem. There's this pattern that we've seen for the last couple of days where Jesus spends his day in Jerusalem, teaching in the temples. Of course, the last time he was in the temple, he was clearing clearing it out and flipping over the tables of the money changers and, and getting rid of the sellers, etc. And then he goes back to Bethany at night. You know, Jesus has loyal supporters in Bethany. 
That's where he raised Lazarus from the dead. It would kind of like be having a safe house, so to speak, that he would get plenty of warning from the community if the religious leaders tried to arrest him while he's in Bethany. So that seems to be the pattern throughout the Passion Week. And as Jesus is walking through the temple area, the religious leaders approach him. And you specifically referenced those three groups, Brian, the priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now, these are the three groups that comprised the Sanhedrin. So as you've been reading your Bible in the New Testament, you'll, you'll see that word, the Sanhedrin. It's made up of those three different groups of, of rulers. And the Sanhedrin really had, outside of, of the Roman authority, really had ultimate authority over all things religious to the Jewish nation, and even some authority in political matters. So these religious leaders who approach Jesus, they're used to having the authority. They're used to being the ones who call the shots. In fact, it says that they demanded, by what authority are you doing all these things? So they they felt they had the right to demand an answer, and they viewed this authority as God-given. So they're very protective of it. And now we see that Jesus is, is pushing back against that authority when it says, by what authority are you doing all these things? You know, Mark doesn't tell us specifically what these things are, but certainly part of what he's talking about has to be the cleansing of the temple. It has to be turning over the the money changers' tables, you know, driving out the sellers. It could have been more than that, though. It might have been, you know, these religious leaders knew that he had healed on the Sabbath. They knew that he didn't follow some of the oral traditions that had been passed down. So that these things statement could be a little more broad than just the temple, but certainly it would have included that. And this question about authority is taking place in the most authoritative location for the Jewish people. It's in the temple. So you've got, you've got the group of men who have been given authority by God to lead the nation of Israel. It's happening in the most authoritative place because Jesus has pushed back against their authority and they feel threatened. And so Jesus answers their question with a question of his own. He did, he did this kind of thing all the time. But, but as we read this, I'm going to read this here in a second. Remember, they said, who gives you the right to do this? You know, by what authority do you do, do you do this? That's their question. Jesus comes back with his own question. But within the question that Jesus asks them is actually a clue to the answer that they're seeking. And John, this is something that I think both, both you and I, as we we're studying this passage afresh, we'd, we'd never really seen this before. And it's really, really powerful. So listeners, pay attention to this. I'm going to read it, John, and then you can explain it. Starting in verse 29, Jesus says, I'll tell you by what authority I do these things if you answer one question. And here was his question. Did John's authority to baptize, talking about John the Baptist, who baptized him earlier in in his ministry, at the beginning of his ministry. So Jesus said, did John's authority to baptize come from heaven or was it merely human? Answer me. It's interesting, John, that they, they demanded an answer and now Jesus is demanding an answer back. I love that Jesus says, answer me. <laughs> like you said, he, he allowed them to ask their question. He responds with a question of his own. But at the end of his question, he demands an answer. And I, I would have loved to have seen the look on the religious leaders' faces when he did that. I bet that's the first time someone had demanded an answer from them in a long time. This idea of Jesus answering a question with a question, I do just want to point out, you know, that's not the only time in Scripture we see that. 
That was a fairly common thing that Jesus would do. He did it in Mark chapter 10 with the rich young ruler. When the rich young ruler said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said, why do you call me good? Uh, In his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus says, well, how can this be when Jesus talks about being born again? And Jesus says, you're Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe, then how will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? So, So Jesus... You know, asking a question with a question, I think is a good model for us to use even sometimes, you know, in our apologetics and our conversations with believers. And even even in our parenting, just on Wednesday, we released on our family podcast, I encourage people to go back and check that out, the Pursue God Family podcast. We talked about the principle of discovery when it comes to parenting teens. And one of the things we say on the podcast is, Hey, don't just cram truth down your teenager's throat. Don't force feed them the truth. Do what Jesus did, which is to help them discover truth. And one of the best ways to do that is to ask questions. Ask questions so that they can discover the truth that you already know. That's really what Jesus is doing. You know, Jesus isn't just going toe to toe with these Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. Like he really wants to teach them. They just don't have hearts that are open to it, but he wants them to hear it. He's being gracious even when he asks them questions. But but again, there's a seed, there's a seed of truth in this particular example. John, I always thought, I think you did too. I always thought that Jesus asked this question just to kind of dodge their question, but it's more than that, isn't it? Yeah, Jesus absolutely isn't just dodging the question. And I, I always knew that Jesus, in his wisdom and his knowledge, knew that this question he was going to ask was going to put them in a tight spot that it was going to be hard for them to answer. But I didn't realize the seed of, of truth that actually answers their question. So, so back to how Jesus responded. He said, did John's authority to baptize come from heaven or was it merely human? So if they say John's authority came from heaven, then they would also have to accept John's claims about Jesus, right? Jesus excuse me, John claimed that Jesus was the Messiah. He said, one is coming of whose shoes I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. He said, behold, the Lamb of God, as Jesus was approaching him in one of the Gospels. So if they say, oh no, John's authority was from heaven, then Jesus can just say, well, there's your answer. There's the authority by which I do these things. Also at Jesus's baptism, we see both God the Father and the Holy Spirit affirm the authority of Jesus because God the Father says, you know, behold, this is my beloved son. With him, I am well pleased. And we see the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus like a dove. So if they say, oh yeah, John's authority was from heaven, then Jesus is going to say, well, there's your answer, guys. I'm the Messiah. And that's why I have authority. I'm God the Son. If they say John's authority was from men, they're scared to death the crowd might riot because everyone held that John was a true prophet. So Jesus's question is ingenious in the sense that they can't answer it, but it's even deeper than that. And honestly, Brian, like you mentioned, I didn't, I didn't really catch that until just this time of reading this story, that there is, there is a seed of the answer to their question in Jesus's question back to them. And then you know, if you've been following along in this podcast, if you've been with us for a whole journey through the gospel of Mark, we see Mark affirm Jesus's authority throughout the gospel. We saw him forgive sins in Mark 2, 
You know, only God can do that. He claims supremacy over the Torah and over the Sabbath, also in Mark 2 and in Mark chapter 3. He describes himself as the strong man who binds Satan. In Mark 3, we've seen his authority over nature as he's calmed storms and walked on water. So throughout Mark's gospel, we've seen the divine authority of Jesus affirmed. And we even saw his authority over the fig tree last week when he curses the fig tree and it dies. And, and of course, that we saw last week that that's really bracketing really his condemnation of the temple and what it, what it, what it had become. And, and essentially, he was saying that is going to be done. The temple and trying to get to God that way is now fulfilled. And G- Jesus is going to fulfill every ritual that the temple ever envisioned. And Jesus now becomes a fulfillment. He's the priest. He's the sacrifice. All that stuff. We saw all that last week. So again, the, the Sanhedrin, some of this stuff they would have known about, some of the stuff they would have heard about, some of this stuff they would have seen with their own eyes. And I'm sure, John, it had to frustrate them to no end that they had the robes and the tassels and they had the, the, the titles with their names, but they didn't have the authority that Jesus clearly had, this uneducated carpenter's son. They didn't have the authority that he had. And so they're pushing him. They're threatened by him. They're insecure because of this. And it says in verse 31, they talked it, they talked it over among themselves. They said, look, if we say it's from heaven, then he's going to ask why we didn't believe John. But if we dare say it was, but do we dare say it was merely human? For they were afraid of what the people would do because everyone believed that John was a prophet. And so they, they finally replied, just like Jesus knew they would. They finally replied, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know whether John's baptism really had God's stamp of approval or not. And then Jesus responded, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things either. Jesus knew they weren't really seeking truth. Uh, you, you don't see in Scripture, I can't think of an example, and certainly I'll, I'm open to stand corrected, if, but I can't think of a time where someone's really seeking truth from Jesus that he doesn't answer their questions. So the question was a loaded question. They weren't really wanting to know. And they were hoping to use it to trap Jesus. They, they wanted to have a reason to accuse him in front of the crowds. And so it's a hard issue. You know, I, I've often had questions when I've come to God and in his word, and when my heart has been humble, when when I've really longed just to know God more, I feel like he almost always answers those questions, which is very comforting for me. Okay, and then in chapter 12, we're including chapter the next several, the next parable basically as part of this whole episode, because Jesus, coming out of this interaction with the Sanhedrin, Jesus tells a parable. And the parable is, is actually an indictment. The parable do, does two things. First of all, it's an indictment on the Sanhedrin. And then, but it, it's also, as we're going to see, it's also going to foreshadow his death. Remember, not a week after this, Jesus is going to be hanging on the cross because of the authority of the Sanhedrin. So they're, they're going to think that they had the final word and haha, we got him. But of course, we as Christians know that, that Jesus had the final word and that he defeated death. But all of that then is kind of, being brought into focus with this parable that Jesus begins to teach them right there, right in front of the Sanhedrin and, and who, probably other people listening. He told them this story. He said, a man planted a vineyard. He built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice and built a lookout tower. And then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers 
and moved to another country. Now, John, we got to pause right here because maybe you can explain this to modern listeners. This isn't this isn't the kind of parable Jesus would tell today. He would probably speak in terms that we would understand. But the people back then completely understood the parable that he was about to set up here. Yeah, that's the beauty of a parable, right? Is that you're using an everyday illustration that the common people would understand and this was a common practice in Jesus's day, especially in Galilee. Archaeologists have discovered records of this same sort of dispute that Jesus talks about between landowners and the tenant farmers. So the tenant farmers, you know, were given the land to work. It wasn't their land. So think about that from the perspective of the religious leaders, the the authority that they had was God-given. They didn't have any authority on their own. Their their authority over the nation of Israel wasn't, um, it was a blessing. It, It was a gift given from God. They hadn't earned it. They didn't deserve it. And and that's similar to these tenant farmers and what we're going to see in the story. So Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience here. So not only is it common practice for them to have these tenant farmers, but a Jewish audience would have been aware that the symbolism of a vineyard was used in the Old Testament as a picture of Israel. So, so the vineyard in the story is Israel and Israel's people. The tenant farmers then represent the religious leaders and they're the ones that are supposed to be caring for and looking after and seeking the good of the vineyard, which would have been the Israelites. Yeah. And so they're, you know, he's telling the story and the guys, you know, the Sanhedrin's listening to this. I mean, just really put yourself in their shoes. And here's what he says next. I mean, it's like Jesus is picking a fight here. He says at the time of the grape harvest, the, the owner sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop from the tenant farmers, the Sanhedrin, so to speak. But the farmers grabbed the servant, beat him up, sent him back empty-handed. So this is probably kind of a a reference to the prophets in the Old Testament, right? The owner then sent another servant, but they insulted him and beat him over the head. The next servant he sent was killed. Others he sent were either beaten or killed until there was only one left, his son, whom he loved dearly. And the owner finally sent his son thinking, surely they will respect my own son. Verse seven, but the tenant farmers said to one another, here comes the heir to this estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him and murdered him and threw his his body out of the vineyard. Yeah, Jesus is definitely picking a fight, as you said. I mean, what an indictment on really the history of the leadership for the nation of Israel. You know, we look back in the Old Testament, there are so many examples of, of prophets who were mistreated, whose lives were threatened, whose lives were actually taken. And you know, I think of when Stephen is giving his address to the council right before he's martyred. In Acts 7, he says, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And then then they kill him too. You know, it's like, well, we'll just, we'll just reinforce what you just said. And and as I listen to that story, you know, I, I hear that parable and maybe you're like me, some of you are listening, you're like, how did the landowner not see that coming? How did the landowner think they were going to somehow treat his son differently, that they thought he was going to show, that they were going to show his son mercy? But, man, that's the point. 
God sent his son knowing exactly what would happen. It was his plan all along to redeem us from sin. You know, God knows every sinful act you've committed, even knows the ones you've thought about and didn't carry out, and he still sent Jesus to die for you. That is so powerful to me that Jesus died for the religious leaders too if they would have just received it. If they just would have received what he did, Jesus was willing to die for their sins too. The other thing that I notice about this parable is Jesus basically lets the religious leaders know, I know what you're going to do. I I know you're going to kill me. He says right here in the story, they kill the son. He's clearly talking about himself. And they know that he's talking about himself because it says that they realized the parable was about them and they made plans to kill him. That that's, I think that's, I would have loved to have just been in the minds of the religious leaders when Jesus basically tells this parable and it's kind of like, Hey, I, I know what you're doing. Did it, did it scare them? Did it make them even more angry? You know, that, that he knows everything. And I just love the fact that Jesus isn't fearful He's not running away. It doesn't seem like he's even overly angry. I mean, he's he's frustrated. He demands an answer. But they're not doing anything to him that he doesn't want them to do. They're not doing anything to him that he's not allowing to do. He's in control. And why is he in control? Because, again, he has the authority. Yeah, and I, I don't know if I ever really noticed this, but you know, verse 6 said there was only one left, his son whom he loved dearly. Now, remember, remember these are... Mark, Jesus's words in Mark's gospel, but Mark chapter one, if we go back to what, Mar- what Jesus was calling the Sanhedrin back to, his baptism, I'm going to read those words again from Mark chapter one, verse 11, a voice from heaven said at Jesus's baptism, you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. So there it is. I've never really noticed that connection with that language. It's the same language and I mean, it's Jesus is making it so obvious to the Sanhedrin that he has authority because he is the son. He is the dearly loved son that they're rejecting. And he knows that it's going to end in his death. He's, yeah, it really is really kind of shocking to think that it's like this game that they're playing. Jesus knows what's going on. He knows how the week's going to end. And now they know that he knows. And yet it's still going to happen. But I think it's interesting that Jesus then finishes this parable with the the owner's response. He says this, verse 9, what do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do? And I'm sure, John, that he was sort of staring the Sanhedrin in the eye when he said this. What do you think the owner of the vineyard is going to do? What what do you think God's going to do? when you guys hang me on that cross. Now, maybe they weren't thinking about a cross. Maybe they were, I don't know. But what do you think God's going to do? And, and he says this, I'll tell you, he'll come and kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. Didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? And then Jesus quotes scripture here. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, just like you said, John, this is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. Yeah, I love that last part. Jesus is actually quoting from Psalm 118 here. And Psalm 118 has so many cool connections to what we've been seeing over the last couple of days of Jesus's ministry. When when the crowds were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that's Psalm 118. And now Jesus says, the stone the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. 
this is the Lord's doing, and it's wonderful to see the, the first part of that, the stone the Buddha's reject has now become the capstone or the cornerstone. That's Psalm 118. There, there's just all these really cool connections to that psalm. That's also the psalm that the Jewish men would sing as they celebrated the Passover. So Jesus is going to be singing that psalm here in just a few days as he celebrates the Passover and the Last Supper with the disciple. So listeners, read Psalm 118 if you have some time this week and just see all these cool connections that it has. But this statement, it's the Lord's doing and it's wonderful to see. The only reason it's wonderful is because it's the Lord's doing. I mean, how can the conviction of an innocent man be wonderful to see? How can the brutal torture and the crucifixion of the perfect Lamb of God be wonderful to see only because it's God's doing, only because it's God's plan to conquer sin and death for all who would believe? You know, the cross is the the place in history where God's mercy and God's grace collide, and it is wondrous to see. It's amazing to see. It's interesting that Jesus would say that, it, you know, calls to mind Romans 8. 28, pretty famous passage about, you know, God works all things for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. And, you know, that applies to this as well. You know, the Sanhedrin is apparently going to win. They're going to get their way and Jesus is going to be hanging on a cross by the end of the week. But yet Jesus is saying, God's got this. He he trusts even in the midst of that, you know, we're going to see in a little, a little bit later that he's in, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's, he's saying, you know, to the father, he's praying to the father, let this cup of suffering pass from me. It's not like he want he wasn't, he didn't want to die. He wasn't a, you know, a masochist. He, he, he'd recognized that it was part of the plan of God, the father. I mean, speaking of authority, John, that he was, Jesus was submitted to the authority of God, the father in this plan that Jesus would have to go to the cross. So even this whole parable has a seed of authority. It's not necessarily Jesus's authority. It's the God, God, the father's authority and how Jesus submitted himself to the authority of God, the father, like he prayed in the garden of Gethsemane, not, not my will, but yours be done. That, I mean, that really is part of the answer to the question we're seeking is spiritual authority, even, even a thing anymore. It's always been a thing. And, and like it said, like Jesus said right here, this is the Lord's doing, and it's wonderful. Being submitted to God's authority is wonderful. It, even even if it even on the outs if if on the outside it means pain or suffering for us. Even maybe some of our listeners are going through some things that they're really confused about. They're not really sure how to make sense of it. They're wondering if God could still love them in the midst of it. But. God, God is in control. God has authority. God was not. God is not ever surprised by any kind of tragedy that comes into our lives. And I know, John, that for some people that's really hard. Yes, pastors, we've had to walk with a lot of families through these kinds of tragedies. And I think there's something to be learned from G- even Jesus's response right here. I think Jesus submitting to the authority of the Father is also another reminder for us that submission doesn't make me less than. Jesus isn't less God than God the Father. He's not less God than the Holy Spirit, but he's still submitted to the will of the Father, to the plan that they're really all three members of the Trinity, um, 
you know, created before the foundations of the world. This would be the plan to bring humanity back into relationship with God. And so I just bring that up. I don't want to get us off track, but when you are submitting to authority, whether that's to a spiritual authority in your church, whether that's a wife submitting to the authority of her husband, that, that doesn't make you less than because Jesus certainly wasn't God junior, right? He's not, he's not less God than God, the father. Hmm. The other thing too, that I just want to throw in, cause I'm kind of a Spurgeon nut. I love this. I love this picture of the cornerstone where Jesus uses this quote and, and think about what a cornerstone did in that time, right? I mean, their methods of construction were certainly different than what we have today, but the cornerstone is what kept both lines of the building plumb. It, you know, it's that 90 degree angle at the corner and, and it's the most important part and it really holds the building together. And Spurgeon has this quote, he says, now he, meaning Jesus, is the bond of the building holding Jew and Gentile in firm unity. This precious cornerstone binds God and man together in wondrous amity, for he is both in one, right? Jesus is both fully God and fully man. He joins earth and heaven together, for he participates in each. He joins time and eternity together, for he was a man of few years, and yet he is the ancient of days, wondrous cornerstone. Jesus holds it all together. He is the very foundation of it all. All of Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, points to Jesus. He is the cornerstone. And certainly when Jesus said this in verse 11, the Sanhedrin had to be even more upset because they knew exactly what he was saying. He was saying what you just read from Spurgeon. He was, he was making that claim that, that they're rejecting him, the Son of God, in, in whom the Father is well-pleased, they're rejecting him. They're rejecting the cornerstone. They're rejecting the one who holds it all together. They're, they're rejecting the real authority in the church today. That's what they're rejecting. In fact, verse 12, it says that the religious leaders wanted to arrest Jesus because they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away, but only for a little bit because they're going to still have their way. They're going to put him on trial. They're going to get him to be hung on a cross. They're not willing to submit to the authority of Jesus in their lives. And really, I mean, that, that's the question for us, right? Go back to the opening question. Is, is spiritual authority a thing anymore? And the answer is yes. Jesus didn't come to get rid of authority just because the Sanhedrin was so corrupt or the temple was so jacked up by, by this time. Jesus didn't come and just say, forget it. We're going to just abolish all authority. Everybody just do whatever you want. You know, he, he didn't die on the cross so that we could all just do whatever we want, like some Christians believe. Spiritual authority is a thing, and it's anchored, it's rooted, it's rooted in Jesus. Jesus is the one with ultimate authority in our lives. Yeah, the religious leaders, I mean, they come to a, a pivotal moment here. They... The Bible says they know the stories about them, so they've been they've been put on notice. They've been made aware that they're the wicked farmers, and they have they have two responses they could make. They could receive Jesus for who He is. They could humble themselves in repentance, or they could reject Him, and they chose to reject Jesus. They chose to reject the cornerstone, and the Lord knew they would do it. 
right? Again, it was the Lord's will and it's wondrous in our eyes. God knew the decision they would make in his foreknowledge and his omniscience. He knew they would reject Jesus and he's going to use that to accomplish his purposes. He's going to use that to have Jesus go to the cross so that not only moving forward can the Jewish people have relationship with God the Father, you know, can they be reconciled, but but all nations, you know, way back to the promise he made Abraham that all nations will be blessed because of you. And really in our lives, Brian, it's it's the same question, right? There's a point in our life when we're made aware of our brokenness. We recognize we're sinful. We recognize we need a savior. We can't fix ourselves. And we have to make that same decision. Are we going to humble ourselves? Are we going to repent and receive Jesus and receive what he did for us? Or are we going to reject him? Receiving Christ, the, rec- the prerequisite for receiving Christ, for saving faith, is submission to his authority. You can't, you can't say, I want, to, I want his forgiveness. I want his free gift of salvation. But I don't want his lordship in my life. I don't want him to be able to call the the shots in my life. That's not a thing. You can't you can't take Jesus on as savior and not take him on as lord. You have to be willing to submit to his authority. That's why in the pursuit our our flagship 12-week series at pursuegod.org. If you've never taken this by the way to our listeners, I encourage you to go through this series if you're if you're new to the Bible or to Christianity. In in lesson 4 we talk about sin. In lesson five, we talk about Jesus, and then in lesson six, we pull it all together, and we talk about our our saving our saving response to faith. That if we if we recognize our sin, that we're broken and we need His salvation, that we repent and turn to Him, and turn to the Jesus of the Bible, the Bible says, then we'll be saved. But again, it requires submission. That that ugly word for so many the A word or the S word, authority or submission, either one. They're both words that Americans just bristle at today. Jesus is our spiritual authority. And to be a follower of Jesus, you have to be submitted to his authority in your life. And John, I think there's one more thing we should add on to this before we're done with this episode, because I could hear some of our listeners saying, I'll submit to Jesus. I'll submit to his authority in my life, but I'm not going to go to church or I'm not going to submit to a spiritual leader in my life, a pastor, a small group leader, a mentor, an elder. There's so many people who think, they think that Jesus's authority has nothing to do with the authority of the leaders in the church, but the Bible teaches us that spiritual leadership in the church flows from Jesus's authority, and that obedience to godly leaders benefits the soul. In fact, we read this in Hebrews 13, 17. It says, obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. This is the Bible, everybody. I'm going to read this again. This is in the Bible. This is in the Bible. Maybe this isn't one you'll see on the walls in your kitchen, but this is in the Bible. In the New Testament, Hebrews sounds like it's an Old Testament book, but it's in the New Testament. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls and they're accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy and not with sorrow. That would certainly not be for your benefit. John, there's so much in here. This could be its own sermon, but why don't you kind of just pull out the brilliance of this passage? Well, the first thing that I notice is that the the last sentence in that verse, Brian, says, if you cause your spiritual leaders to, to basically lead you with sorrow, that won't be for your benefit. 
So he's not talking about the spiritual leaders. And obviously that'd be a drag for your spiritual leaders if you cause them much sorrow. But, but at the end of the day, it's not about your leader. It's about you. It won't be good for you if you do that. Now, again, we let off the podcast with this. We live in a broken and fallen world, and, and there are certainly spiritual leaders who abuse authority. And, and can I just say, if, if you've experienced that, in, in all sincerity, I, I am sorry for that. Like, my heart breaks for you if you've experienced that. And I just pray that that you would know that God can even use that in your life. God can redeem that. And, and, and I pray that whoever may have abused spiritual authority over you would seek forgiveness, uh, would, would come to recognize that. But even if they don't, that you can, you can forgive, you can move on. That's a gift for you, um, that, that God would give you the heart to forgive that. But godly authority— seeks what is best for you. Maybe not what makes you the happiest. (laughs) It's like as a dad, right? Brian, you and I are both dads. I mean, it would have made my children happy if I let them eat Fruity Pebbles for dinner every night when they were kids. (laughs) But that would not be for their good. So I, I have to balance, you know, what's for their good, what's the best for them with what makes them happy. And sometimes I have to pick things that don't make them happy. But I'm not doing it because I'm callous. I'm not doing it because, you know, I'm looking to benefit myself. I'm doing it because I really want what is best for them. I want to be a blessing to them. And whether the people who have spiritual authority over you realize it or not, this verse tells me that they're accountable to God. And I do not take that lightly. I I can honestly say that at times causes me anxiety as a pastor. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, me that, too. That, yeah, sometimes I think about that, and I'm like, God, I fall so short, and I'm going to be accountable for that. So just, God, please be merciful to me. You know, I know you're going to hold me accountable, but just, you know, God, thank you for the blood of Jesus that washes over my sins, because I fall short. I have no doubt in my time as a pastor that that I have done things that hurt people, that I didn't communicate maybe the way I wanted to communicate, or I didn't communicate with as much grace as I should have. I, I don't doubt that at all. And again, I would ask for forgiveness. You know, if there's any any one of my congregation listening to this podcast, and you're like, yeah, that's me, Pastor John, I, I hope you would <laughs> let me know, and mm-hmm. I will seek forgiveness from you. But if I've had to have a co- hard conversation with someone because they were living outside of God's boundaries— I'm not going to seek your forgiveness for bringing that conversation up. Now, if I, if I did it in a stern way or if I did it with a condescending attitude, you bet. I will, I will humbly ask you to forgive me for that. But if you're upset about what I challenged you on, something that's clear in God's word that it's sinful, I'm doing that because I love you. And I'm doing that because I want the best for you just like God does that with me. Now, he does it perfectly. I do it imperfectly, but that's really my heart in it. Well, because your work, as it says in Hebrews 13, your work, John, my work, every parent's work. I mean, this is, parents are pastors at home. So parents, this is this applies to you as well with regard to your kids. Your work is to watch over the souls of of your kids, or for, in our case, our the congregation, and we're accountable to God for that. That's a, 
there's authority. I mean, there's two layers of authority here, right? The author of Hebrews is saying, hey, you to the flock, to the people, obey your spiritual leaders because you're accountable to them, but but your spiritual leaders are accountable to God. So everyone's under authority. Nobody, nobody's the top of the food chain here. Everyone's under authority. And when we're when we all understand this, this beautiful, like you said at the beginning, John, this 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 beautiful concept of spiritual authority leads to our freedom. It leads to our joy. It's for our benefit. It's not to hurt us. It's not meant to be toxic like it had become for the Sanhedrin in the days of the temple. Yeah, amen. If you watch any parent-child relationship, you know, a child that is that is young, maybe preteen, <laughs> where where mm. the child knows that mom and dad love them and value them, even in the, you know, even in the constraints of their protection, there is joy, man. There is there is freedom. Uh, I know. I know that God's boundaries are for my good. Now, look, in the heat of the moment, certainly I still push back sometimes. Certainly I still question. But when I just stop and think about God's goodness and God's character, then it it really does give me cause to want to know God's decrees, to want to know God's commands. Why? Because in following those, there's freedom and there's joy. There's purpose. There's all these amazing things. You know, Jesus said, I come that you might have life and have it to the full. God doesn't want to be stingy with us. God doesn't, you know, I, I think about all the sexual sin in our culture and all the all the wounds and all the brokenness and all just the evil, dirty that comes from that. Man, if we would just follow God's boundaries in that area of our lives— it'd be so full of joy. There'd be so much freedom. There'd be so so much less baggage that people are carrying around. So we can trust God's authority. We can trust the authority of Jesus Christ in our lives when we put our faith in Him. And if you're not engaged in a church where you can trust the leadership, where you can trust that, hey, even though they're, they're, they're not perfect, they're going to make mistakes, but they know they're accountable to God— Man, I'd, I'd can encourage you to go find a church where you can do that. So is spiritual authority a thing anymore? Absolutely. And it's a good thing. Now, if you want to talk about this one with your small group, with your family, maybe with your kids, or one-on-one with a mentor, you can find all this online, pursuegod.org forward slash Mark. Hey, listeners, Pastor Brian here. If you're enjoying our podcast, would you consider becoming a donor? Our goal is that these podcasts would reach the largest audience possible. So obviously it takes money to create good podcasts, but more than that, we wanna make sure to market this to the whole nation and even to the world. That's where your donation comes in. So would you consider becoming a monthly donor? And to do it, just visit pursuegod.org forward slash donate. 